Welcome to the Alperen Shangun episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast, aka episode 28. My name is Logan Wortman, and today, as always, I am joined by my good friend, Jacob Roth. Jacob, how's it going? It is going great. Loving the episode uh, muse today. Mm-hmm. Shangun, baby, Jokic. Couldn't go with anyone else. Uh, outside of Killian Hayes, the most loved prospect by uh, Kevin O'Connor. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, it's a great one. How are you doing, man? I'm doing a lot better than last week, to be honest. If you guys listened to last episode, you know the Nuggets struggles, how uh, we've lost five out of our previous six games before this one that just happened today. And uh, today we had rematch with the Nets, who we faced last Sunday. And that obviously didn't turn out well, the first one. But this rematch was a lot better. But yeah, just to jump into Nuggets corner, basically go through uh, the Nuggets a week, the games I haven't talked about on the podcast yet. So the Nuggets have been on a East Coast road trip over the past week. Uh, We started in Toronto, um, which Fred Van Vliet was completely nuclear that game. And Jamal Murray had a very terrible game, even though like, you know, the Nuggets broadcast made a big deal about it being in his hometown and everything. And then I think that might have jinxed him. But that game did not turn out well at all. We lost 125 to 110. And then the next game, we were in Detroit. Uh, That one was not a good game either. We did end up winning, but uh, it was close the entire game until like the last five or six minutes. And in that five or six minutes is when we actually looked like the team we've been most of the season. And we pulled ahead enough to get it to 119-100. So we won by 19 points. But for most of the game, it was like a four or five point game. And then the Knicks, we played yesterday. So we've been in New York the past two days. Uh, we lost the Knicks. Brunson was basically the Van Vliet of that game. And it was kind of a gritty battle. We lost 116-110. I'm trying to remember what Jokic had. I think he had a slightly below average game, but it still wasn't, you know, I think we just weren't getting enough from the ancillary pieces around him. And then this game, the Brooklyn game, uh, that one was a lot different. You know, rematch from last week, like I said. Honestly, this Nets team is still really fun. I find them very entertaining. Last week, we drafted our favorite teams to watch and the nets were like number six for me and that's continued but i like watching them a lot more (laughs) when we're beating them to be honest you know jamal had an amazing first quarter i don't know if you saw that but he came out right out of the gates really hot and that's another weird thing about this game the first like six minutes you couldn't even watch really because a couple minutes into it the broadcast just went black and then it went to a commercial like and it was in the middle of a play the broadcaster was mid-sentence and everything. And then it came back and just showed the footage, like camera of the game without sound or anything. And then all of a sudden there was like the guys from like the Altitude Studio show that came on, just their voices over that footage and started saying that there was a power outage for like the media vans in Brooklyn. So they had to just do this makeshift broadcast <laughs> where they were like just, you know, giving comments. They're doing commentating basically over footage without any audio or any graphics on screen or anything like no scoreboard or, or anything. It was very odd. But amidst that, Jamal Murray had 20 points in the first quarter. He had 25 in the first half. So, you know, second quarter wasn't quite as good as the first. But what do you think he ended up with on the game? 
I'm going to go with a standard Jamal Murray move. I'll say he's had 25 in the first half. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say he ended with 27. He ended with 25. Oh, dang. <laughs> yeah, even though he played most of the second half. but Also, burying the lead of MPJ posterizing Jokic. Oh, you saw that? Yes. Nice. Yes, I'm glad you saw that. I was I was at uh, something for work, so I was only able to catch bits of it. Uh-huh. But that was the thing that ESPN blew up and was like, Oh, really? You got to get it done. You got to get it done. Or yeah. Bleacher Report. Somebody blew it up. He's like, MPJ's posterizing his own. His uh, own teammate. Yeah. Teammate. That, yeah. that was a funny play. And then... Porter, right after he dunked on him, when they were starting to run back, Porter like got in Jokic's ear and was like trash talking him. <laughs> like he said, on your head, boy, or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, MPJ has been taking it to the rim a lot lately, which I'm very glad to see because at the beginning of the season, he was looking very stiff really the past couple of years. You know, it's a guy who's had three back surgeries and some knee problems and foot issues. So I'm glad to see him actually being like athletic and aggressive now. Like he looks completely different, but it's been sustainable so far. So that's awesome. But yeah, Jamal had a classic Murray flurry or whatever you want to call it in the first half and then came up not really contributing in the second half, but it was enough to get us by. The MPJ was really good the whole game, mainly the first half also though, but he had his shot going all game. I just pulled up the box score. Wild. 108 with uh, how many bench points is that? 15 bench points. That was it. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Because you had 10 from Gordon, 28 from Porter, 22 from Jokic, 25 from Murray, 8 from KCP, mm-hmm. and then no one in the bench had more than 5 points. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, our bench is usually not good, but yeah. I mean, typically you'll see like a Bruce Brown get like 10 or 12 points, something like that four. off the bench. Yeah. Bruce Brown has been not that great lately. I'm kind of going out of order in my notes now, but that's okay. I'll, but I'll get to that in a second. Jokic, like you said, he scored 22. Even though he only put up 22 points, watching the game, it was like he was scoring at will. It was basically Murray had it going first half, first quarter. MPJ had stints where he was nailing everything. And then in the time, like all the other parts of the game where we couldn't get much going, Jokic was like, all right, I'm just going to post up whoever's guarding me because it doesn't matter. You know, the Nets don't have anybody that can stop me. And he was he was shooting. He was being aggressive. So uh, that was good to see. He got his 104th triple double of his career. How many on the year? Do you know? 28, I think. Because I knew like it wasn't. It's just crazy. Think about how, like, our perspective on a triple-double is kind of like, oh, 28, that's pretty good. Because, like, uh, Westbrook had 44 or 43 that one year. Yeah, I think it was over 40, but I don't know. I don't know if it... I thought he bar- I thought he was It was almost 50-50, like barely over 50-50 in my brain. Oh, but oh. I could be way off on that. I Maybe thought- at the All-Star break he was half and half and then went out. I don't remember. But uh, I think it was like 40-41, something like that. But, yeah, uh, it's still ridiculous, though. But the, But the fact that we like look at triple doubles as like less of an achievement because of that. Like we still as basketball people like understand it's a big deal, but we yeah. don't put it to this like only f- like Oscar Robertson. And then like there was Jason Kidd sprinkled, like not Jason Kidd. Who's the other, is it? No, it is Jason Kidd, isn't it? Jason Kidd is, yeah. One of the guys up there over a hundred. But the fact that there's like five of them that have over a hundred. Yeah. In NBA history, that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's not even five. I don't even know if it's five, but it's about f- it. There's, Magic, Oscar, Russ, Jokic, and Kidd, I think, all have over 100. LeBron is right under 100, I think. Which which would make sense just because he's never, like, done the roles. Uh, That's a whole LeBron conversation. Mm -hmm. But anyway. And, uh, like, Jordan, surprisingly, is in the top 10. That is actually kind of surprising just because he – Yeah. The assist thing. But – Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. uh, He also looked like he was selling the the, um, Hornets – 
and everybody was clowning on him because they've had no success. But then people don't realize that he bought in at like 113 million, and the team is being valued at like 1.45 billion dollars yeah. in the value of the team. So did he really do that bad? <laughs> for yeah, himself? exactly. Um, yeah. But anyway, that that got way off topic. But yeah, it's just crazy that like. Not just Jokic, but like the triple double accomplishment that it is has been diminished just because we've seen probably the most efficient triple double machine, whether yeah. it's statting pats, what or stat padding stats, whatever you want to call it. It's just crazy that was like, oh yeah, it was triple double, whatever that uh, just happens. It really didn't. It didn't for a long time just casually happen. But yeah, 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 exactly. And honestly, Kendrick Perkins, ever since he called Jokic a stat patter, I don't know if you saw that. Jokic doesn't usually let things like that get to him, like let things that people in the media say. But after one of his games, shortly after that happened, uh, somebody asked him something about his numbers that he had that night. And he was like, uh, yeah, it's pretty easy, though, when you're stat padding or he said something like that. But the Nuggets made it a point recently to take him out of the game before we even need to or, or we should. When he's close to a triple-double and we're winning, Malone in a, co- a couple games ago took Jokic out but left the rest of the starters in. And I, it was like a very clear like, oh, you know, we're he's making a point of like, I'm going to make sure nobody can say that he's stat padding. I just think it's unnecessary. Just like let him play basketball. <laughs> also, before the uh, LeBron stands freak out, LeBron does have over 100 triple doubles. He has 106. Oh, okay. It is Russell Westbrook with 198. Yeah. Robertson has 181. Magic 138, which is crazy impressive when you think about the length of careers of those two guys, how they like weren't crazy long ones. Russell Westbrook also hasn't had an insanely long career. I guess he's going on. Westbrook was drafted in 08. I totally forgot yeah. that he was right after KD. He's mm-hmm. been going for a while. Anyway, Magic has it in the least amount of games uh, with 138 and 906 games. Jason Kidd with 107, LeBron 106, and Jokic 103. Well, 104 now. Oh, if yeah, it probably didn't get done today. Um, yeah. So odds are when things are said and done, it'll be Westbrook, Robertson, and then probably Jokic saying he plays three more years at this type of pace that would put him in third. Because I don't think he gets over 181 unless he plays for forever. Which he could. His play style isn't like I'm a freak athlete. Exactly. It's a, I'm a I'm a big brain guy that's gonna outthink you. He has one of the best like aging type of games, but he's made comments in the past of like he doesn't want to play very long. Like he doesn't want to play till he's 35. Also, another added to the impressiveness thing: Jokic has had 103 in 589 games. Okay. LeBron has 106 in 1413 games. Yeah. So Jokic is on pace for a potential. There is a perspective for people that say, like, Magic, blah, blah, blah. Jokic is, I think, on a better pace than Magic for triple doubles per, like, number of games played. And if if you change the stat down to it's a double-double with nine in one of the other categories, he destroys everybody in that. Which is just, that's basically proof that he's not stat padding. (laughs) Because why would he go out of the game with nine assists, you know, like, if he was trying to get a triple-double? Anyways, we were talking about the Nets game, and yeah, so, I mean, we lost, or we won 108-102, but that was not as close as the game actually was. We were up by 22 at one point, and we started the fourth quarter really bad because uh, we had our whole bench in. We were up by 22, and they started losing the lead enough to where we had to put our starters back in. Also, the Nuggets basically kicked or punted, or whatever you want to call it on their last couple possessions of the game, just letting the shot clock run out. And then the Nets had a possession with no shot clock because, you know, the game clock was at like 20-something seconds. 
and Seth Curry was like he was he was like jawing with the Nuggets bench for most of the game, but he went and took a, a completely uncontested wide open three in the corner for no reason, <laughs> which gave them 102. But yeah, so it wasn't quite that close. But yeah, the fourth quarter was a little concerning. Honestly, like I, I did want to talk about like Malone and, and coaching today for the podcast. But like, honestly, he gave me a little bit more hope this game. Not a whole lot, I guess, because I still don't love the way he does his rotations. That's always been my main complaint with him. But, you know, he's he seemed to be fiddling with it more with how we've been struggling lately. He's like trying new things. There was a stretch in there where it was basically Jokic staggered with bench players, which is what I've said from the very beginning he needs to do. He just needs to have all of the starters come out earlier than most teams have their starters come out and put in the bench just around Jokic and stagger it that way. And then the rest of the starters come in as basically the bench minutes for the rest of the game until the closing minutes. Like, I think that would just be the best way to do things because Jokic with any four out there is a, a very good <laughs> lineup. He elevates the offense. Like, the de- mm-hmm. your, your bench defensively, not the problem. Yeah. Their defense is not a bench-level defense. Like, they, they can – a lot of those guys are starters defensively, if that makes sense. Yeah. But their offensive reasons are why they're not starters somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. And Jokic just kind of nullifies 50% of that by elevating everybody around him. So that makes sense for sure. Mm -hmm. And I have a new theory with Bruce Brown. I kind of have a little bit of a confession to make about it because I feel like this would come as a surprise to most people. I don't know. I have not loved Bruce Brown this season. He's really starting to fall farther down my level of trust in terms of like ranking these players on how much I trust them. I don't know. I think it would be better though. Like I, I have ideas that would be able to fix it or like potentially, you know, ideas to try but I don't know if that will ever happen. I think he needs to play with Jokic or with a bunch of starters in the lineup whenever he's playing minutes because him with the bench is completely pointless. Like he's just not, he's not good at anything (laughs) that adds to like a lineup of people that need something. You know what I mean? Like they need somebody to bring something to the table that he just does not bring. Like he's a guy who kind of augments other great players. He plugs in like, Jokic is a little weak in defensively. Bruce Brown kind of assists with that. Mm-hmm. He assists when somebody else has the skill set. He's the greatest Robin in the history of Robins. Yeah. He's just always will able to help somebody that's just above him. Mm-hmm. But he's not – very rarely will he ever just kind of take the stage and be like, I am the best one here because he's not. Yeah, I think the best role for him by far would just be that like a hustle guy, like an Alex Caruso type of thing. That's basically what he was for the Nets. Just let him be in a group – where he doesn't need to do or handle anything offensively. He's just defending, going after loose balls, just hustling as hard as he can, making great like winning plays like that, cutting off ball, just like being an off-ball presence, playing off of others well, uh, that type of thing. So how we've used him the entirety of the season is for some reason Michael Malone thinks that he is a point guard, so we play him as our backup point guard. Whenever we stagger Murray with the bench, which is what we've usually done this whole season, it's Murray and bench players. It doesn't seem to work very well, and we have Jamal as the shooting guard. So he plays off ball, we get him set up with Bruce Brown handling things, and I don't know, Bruce Brown has had a lot of mistakes, as you would imagine, somebody who's not, who hasn't played point guard since, like, high school, (laughs) you know, to make. So, yeah, that's kind of been my frustration with Bruce Brown, and I think it's not his fault that it's been a, a struggle, but it has been a struggle. Hey, just want to take a quick break from this episode so I could tell you guys about how I just launched my new Patreon page. 
If you don't know about Patreon, it's a great way for people to support creators with a monthly subscription. Becoming a Patreon supporter can even come with a few perks, like early access to new episodes and getting special shoutouts on the podcast. I've recently started working part-time at my job so I can focus more time and energy on the podcast and YouTube channel. So any support would be massively appreciated, and it helps me towards my hope of making this my full-time job someday. So if you want to help support me in that, please head over to patreon.com slash hooptheory. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hooptheory. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, so the DNVR podcast, you know, they're a local Denver uh, media team. Uh, that do a show and they have this thing that they always talk about called their circle of trust. And like every, most of the shows, like they'll talk about who's in their circle of trust. It's kind of an ongoing thing. I kind of like thinking about that idea and, but doing it more in like a ranking style, you know, this is kind of jumbled around throughout the season, but this is basically how things are right now combined with how it's felt most of the season. And obviously, you know, number one, I don't even have to say is Nikola Jokic. (laughs) I think the gap between one and two is bigger than probably the gap between two and 10, to be honest. And honestly, two and three could go either way for me because, you know, Jamal's been very up and down throughout the year. He's had great moments and he's had a lot of not so great moments, which is to be expected. And because mainly that's the type of player he's been throughout his career already. And, you know, combined with him coming back from injury. And then MPJ is the other one. This stretch lately, I think MPJ is number two for me on how important of a player he's been for the team. Like I said before, he's actually taking it to the rim more so than he used to and finishing with like through contact, like just completely actually jamming it on people. He's he's caught like a few bodies over the last few games. And then uh, his three point shot is the same it's always been, which is um quite smooth. He's like a 6'11 or 6'10 Clay Thompson with his jump shot. The disrespect that Aaron Gordon is catching. Yeah, he okay, I was going to get to that. So he's number 4 for me. But like if you would have said oh 2 through 4 depends on the week, I would have got it. I but putting them separating Jamal Jamal and I get that we saw today so this is a bad time. This from an outside. Don't I care about the next but I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> like I I don't but Jamal is so like hot, hot, hot lava flamethrower or welcome to Siberia. You're going to die. Here. <laughs> How do you put them on a trust at two or three? Uh, OK, yeah, I guess if you're talking trust, but like because well, I thought that's what you were going. If you're going from a different thing, that's totally fine. Yeah. But if you're saying like clocks running down. Who's taking the shot? Okay. If it's Siberia, I don't want Jamal Murray on the court. I guess what I mean more by trust is need them to be a part of the rotation. Need Like, I, I want them to be playing. How important they their minutes are as opposed to other players. Because until very recently, I was very sold from the Nuggets basketball that I had watched that Aaron Gordon was the second best Nugget this year. He was for a big stretch of the year. Like, until very, not very recently, like, maybe even All-Star break, MPJ kind of figured stuff out. And it's kind of like stepped up, but like... And Aaron Gordon has been way worse, is another thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's the... I mean, the other guys have definitely trended upward, especially MPJ. But uh, yeah, Aaron Gordon was great for the first whatever stretch that is before All-Star. He started trending like downward a little bit before All-Star. Then right after he had a tiny little bump where, you know, he was like mad that he got snubbed. And then after that, I don't know, he's... 
he's always been kind of like that too since he's gotten to to Denver. We our team is full of like very inconsistent players if you haven't noticed, but like even defensively, he's been for most stretches since he's gotten here our most important defensive player. And then other times he's just completely not a factor. It's like totally he's kind of like an AD sometimes. Like he's depends on his mood or how he's choosing to to execute things. But the positives with Aaron Gordon um, and the reason why I have him for and also the reason why I if I did the Nuggets rotation, like how I said, I want Jokic to play with the bench players. Basically, Uh, honestly, if I had my actual choice to make it, I would actually put Jokic and Gordon stay in while MPJ, KCP and Jamal go out and then three more bench players come in and do it that way, because I think Aaron Gordon his minutes alongside Jokic are just phenomenal. Like he he plays off of Jokic better than any other player on our team, to be honest. Uh, his chemistry with Jokic is very, very, very good. And so he's at number four. Number five, KCP has been a godsend. Like this is another one of the biggest gaps between KCP and six. But KCP, yeah, one of the best three-point shooters in the league this year as far as percentages go. But like, to be honest, he's not that great of like, he's a, he's a very good shooter. He's a very extremely solid three point shooter in the NBA, but it's not like he's a three point specialist. Like there's a difference between what KCP is and a three point specialist, a guy who's, you know, coming off screens who have your game planning, this guy getting three point shots. If he wasn't with the Nuggets, he would not be one of the best three point shooting percentage. Exactly. Shooters of the year. Because when he's open, he knocks him down, but he's not gonna. He's so open yeah. all the time. <laughs> he's just so open. He is because of. Dude, would you rather leave MPJ open or him open? Mm-hmm. Like that's just the. So yeah, it's the worst of two poisons, and a lot of the time they let KCP take the threes and he hits. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of shot creation, like KCP hitting three point jumpers over defenders, MPJ is much better at that than him. Obviously, KCP's. Like he's better at that than some guys, but where KCP really thrives is just the wide open catch and shoots. He's a three and D player, one of the best three and D players in the NBA, to be honest, like at the small guard or small wing position. I mean, he is the best screen navigation of any player that I've ever watched beyond my team, I guess, like watched religiously, you know, because I, I see him play every game this year. But his screen navigation is unbelievable. Like, I didn't know that that was even possible for somebody to move <laughs> the way he does around, like I think it's because his hips are so narrow that he can just slide and and squeeze through like any crevice. But he is he just gets under no matter how tight of a screen you think that's going to be. He somehow can get through it and is able to contest shots from behind if he does get if it's on like a Steven Adams screen, you know, that he just gets completely stopped in his tracks. He's able to trail John Morant and be able to like contest from behind. He's been unbelievable defensively, to be honest, and then just shoots threes on offense and mid-range jumpers. He's really good in the mid-range, too. I love him in the handoff game with Jokic. That's my number five. So I think clearly that's our best five that we should use to start and close games. But number six is one of my favorite players on the team right now, and that is Christian Brown, the rookie out of Kansas. Everything that I just said about KCP on defense, Christian Brown is a slightly bigger version of the... I shouldn't say he's the same thing, because... There are differences to their defensive games or defensive styles. Like KCP, he's like a god at screen navigation, like I said. Christian Brown is more, he can stay in front of players. It almost looks like he knows where they're going before they even choose to do it most of the time. Or like maybe he's unbelievably lucky and always guesses which way to lean his body weight. There's been so many people who have been just completely caught off guard and surprised with him contesting their shots on a fast break or something. 
where he's backpedaling and then jumps somehow straight up, like the most straight up shot contest you'll ever see, and just put his hands straight up and completely stuff, or if not stuff, then he has a very, very effective contest on a shot. And more of those are called fouls than definitely should be. And I have a theory, to be honest, that basketball watchers as well as refs, sometimes our brains just think we're like, oh, that was clearly a foul when it's just extremely good defensive play that you don't usually see. It's like it looked like that guy ran into a brick wall and could not get his shot off. So that must be a foul. But it was like, no, he's in a legal guarding position. Everything that he did there was legal. But you just never see people do that. (laughs) It's like extremely rare. Christian Brown is a special defensive player. Um, Offensively, I love him, you know, taking the ball to the rim just because of how high he can jump. He can finish pretty well, to be honest, but that's about all that he brings. He's fine as a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. He doesn't have much to his game there, I guess, but really good rebounding guard and unbelievable defensively. So I love me some Christian Brown. He has like a 44-inch vertical or something like that. Pretty ridiculous. And then Bruce Brown is my number seven, which I think most people aren't surprised by that now because I of how, what I've said about Bruce Brown throughout this podcast already. But people that I hear, especially national guys like Kevin O'Connor and Zach Lowe, and especially people at the beginning of the season, but it continues till now, when they talk about the Nuggets, they always talk about they have a clear top six. You know, their clear number six guy is Bruce Brown. And I just am starting to question and disagree with like why, like maybe we shouldn't all just blindly accept that. Maybe we should actually challenge that idea a little bit because he's not been that effective to where he's like uncontestable, I guess, for that conversation to happen. And then after Bruce Brown to a th- Three guys that I think can go any which direction on any given night, and that is shown to play out in minutes they get. It's been like a, uh, what do you call that? Like a merry-go-round or a rotating door. What is that called? When you walk into a door at like a hospital? Revolving door. A revolving door. Yeah. I feel like that's, I don't know. I think that is right. I just couldn't think of the word. So yeah, that, that's kind of been like the pattern that these guys have been in. And that is Vlatko, uh, Vlatko Tronchar for p- those at home who don't know him on a first name basis, which I'm sure most people don't. Um, and then Zeke Naji and Jeff Green. Honestly, I don't have a super big preference between those guys because week to week, different guys could be the right answer. And then Reggie Jackson and Thomas Bryant are the guys that I have after them. They have been extremely disappointing since they've gotten to Denver. I think, you know, giving them a little bit more time, especially Reggie, might be useful. But Thomas Bryant, I have no idea what he's supposed to, like, he was advertised. And I feel like what he was like in Washington, too, from what I remember, he was like a good shooter. Like, he could stretch the floor a little bit. He was just really good at scoring on the interior. And that's what his numbers look like with the Lakers, and that's what everybody talked him up as. Since he's gotten to Denver, like, there's so many shots that I'm like, what? Like, it's like a seven-foot jump shot that didn't even come close to going in. And I'm like, what in the world was that? And he's terrible defensively as well, which we all already knew, but we thought he would give enough offensively to offset it. So that's been a disaster. So hopefully moving forward, Unless something changes with that, I'd like to see Zeke as the backup center and move forward like that. And I don't even think I need to mention the rest of the guys, but obviously we have Ish, uh, Ish Smith and, and DeAndre Jordan as bench veterans. And I'd like them to stay that way. You know, if we're completely at a loss for options, they can come in if we need them for a last resort type of situation. But I like having them on the bench and in the locker room. I think they're really good guys, to be honest, to, to have around the team, bring some good vibes so yeah, that is my rankings of the Nuggets players that nobody asked for, but I, I gave them. 
I don't. I think if it was any other team, uh, Chris Brown would be a six man with the way he's played when he gets minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I think if he was with literally any other coach than Malone, he would actually get the time. And that's what's confusing. Like he seems like such a Michael Malone player. Like he's such a Michael Malone guy, even though he's young. Yeah. Like he's the type of guy that Malone loves, and he, and Malone has praised him a lot in interviews and and stuff. But the famous quote that he keeps giving, and what a lot of Nuggets fans, especially like the DNVR guys that I was just mentioning, they quote a lot is the he just is searching endlessly trying to find minutes for Christian Brown. He can't find any minutes for Christian Brown. It's like how you you can definitely find some. (laughs) Yeah. But that's actually a great segue because the initial text that I received from Logan was just kind of wanted to talk about good and bad coaching. And we've all seen it. We all know it. Uh, It comes in a variety of different packages. So I did not a ton. It's not like I did this extensive giant list, but I did a little bit of like what makes a good coach and feel free to uh, comment like Jacob stupid. These are the worst parameters for coaching ever, but I boiled it down into five categories roughly. And those are the coach that has like time management and crunch time, whether that's playoffs, just like being able to manage time and get those figured out, whether it's through an assistant or through the head coach does themselves. However it gets done, doesn't waste time, doesn't have, dribble down the court for 11 seconds and then call a timeout for no reason because you didn't like the look. Calling that, just managing your time efficiently was one big core component that I think matters a lot. The next one, just I didn't know what other category to call it except for just the X's and O's category. Guys, because if you're basketball stupid, not basketball, but if you if you can't coach or teach the X's and O's part of basketball, you're not going to be a great head coach. Mm-hmm. The third one was player interaction because we've seen a lot of coaches struggle and not do well because they can't get players to mold and player relationship building, things like that. I've already forgot my five because I forgot to write them down. Oh, um, I think the other one was uh, adaptability. Oh, uh, ability, yeah, ability to adapt. So there's certain coaches that I've complained about a lot that have no ability to adapt. For example, on the bad side, Mike Budenholzer. He's gotten a little better. Mm-hmm. Budenholzer's terrible, but he's gotten better. Yeah. And then on the good side, you've got all sorts of guys um, that like are able to adapt in situations and be like, okay, we need to change this approach. This I think Steve Kerr is a good example. I don't think he does everything great as a coach, but I think the way that he like when he had all the tools and pieces and not just a bunch of like mid thirty guys that used to be like some of the best players in the league that have kind of just gotten older and slowed down. He can't do as much anymore because he just kind of has to rely on Steph to have fifty points and somehow they still lose, which is wild. Anyway, so there's those four, and then the fifth one was. Was it developing? Didn't you already give your five? Wasn't adaptability your fifth one? That was the fourth one. Oh. Time management, X's and O's, player relations, adaptability. I thought you had something right after player relations that was maybe not. Um, I'm so mad. I Because I, I have examples for all of them. My brand, I just didn't write it down. Yeah. I'm trying to. Okay. you. I feel like you said something else just like since we've been recording. You said, what was the first one? Uh, time management. Time management. X's and O's. Player relations. X's and O's. Player relations. Player relations. Why? Is it adaptability and development? No, it was uh, inventiveness. Oh, oh yeah. Willing to try new things. Which is like Which Nick Nurse. It's kind of, the guy that it's I, like borders and, on adaptability. that they. So oh. it could be the same one. Because I think developing and, guys is also a huge skill. They're di- yeah, that's true. That's true. If you need oh, but, there to be five, exactly. <laughs> but No, I, yeah. But so I guess Logan, with those five categories in mind that I have now written down... <laughs> Am now writing down. <laughs> Which one do you feel like is the most important? Time management. Um, I'd say uh, the okay in the playoffs. 
I'd say the most important one is adaptability. And since it's the most important in the playoffs, then that kind of by default makes it the most important overall. For the, I, I guess it can really be between adaptability and development. Uh, it depends on what lens you're looking at it through, like whether you're looking at it through more of the now type of lens, like that now is what is important versus like long, more of a long-term thing. Because if your coach is very good at developing, then that can, you know, bring you very many fruitful seasons or fruitful um, opportunities in the future, even if he's, you know, a different coach is there later. So that's, you know, that could be a big impact, but probably adaptability is what I've been number one. Yeah, uh, I feel like that's probably one. Uh, for me, one that I really like or I feel like is a big, big deal is the development side. And you said that was your second just because you think of all those teams that are like, oh, that that player was good. And then you paired him with X, X coach, and they became great. Mm-hmm. They took that next step because you can take an all star. You can still develop a guy that's an all star level caliber player. Um, and just get them to that next level just by the knowledge that the coach gives the player and how they scheme things and stuff like that. So just developing, I think, is a huge uh, thing. So I guess we'll just start at the top of my list, time management. And this one looks like it's like kind of hard um, because I didn't know quite how to word it. But like – or maybe you could just be like game awareness. Oh, yeah. Just like knowing when to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a better – When to challenge calls. When to chal- When to do things like that. But like an example that I always think of as a terrible example of this – Modern day NBA, Doc Rivers. I think that's why he's has the most three one series blown in history, mm-hmm. alongside not being able to change the game plan and adapt in the playoffs. Yeah. But I think that like like you think of some of those like close games where like, oh, they need to put this one away. And like Ben Simmons in Atlanta. The the thing that broke Ben Simmons forever. After that first flub, he did they didn't call a timeout. They didn't pull Ben Simmons out and talk to him. But like there was no awareness of what was going on in the game to be like, it's all good. You should have taken that layup. Like there was just no awareness or time management, time management, not the best, but um, Doc River, I just think is he's terrible at it. But then on the good side of that, Popovich, I think is a great example of just kind of like, he's never short a timeout. He never doesn't get the look he wants because he just thinks of stuff that far ahead. The Spurs, I know, like have always been good at the two for one at the end of a quarter, mm. like making sure that We'll use a big chunk of that first one so you don't get a good possession. We'll try to rush you, whatever, and then we'll get our possession at the end. Well, they'll take their first shot with 40 seconds left. Then you get your 24. They've still got a good 60, 16 seconds possession um, at the end of a half. That's just time management that the players do a lot of, but the coaches also have something to do with that when they call for it and things like that. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of like guys that are people that you think in that time management kind of – is there anybody that stands out for that type of thing or do you want to just go to the next one? Honestly – I guess it doesn't. There's we'll not, call it game awareness because time management's a bad way. Yeah. We'll do game awareness. I, I I guess there's not a ton, but I think honestly, Michael Malone. That's one of his better uh, skills as a coach. And with Doc Rivers, like I feel like he probably falls in that bucket a little bit too. I guess I don't. know. That's probably one of the ones that I pay the least amount of attention to out of, out of all of these skills. But uh, with Doc Rivers, the main things that I think of, I guess, when I think of why I don't trust him. As a coach, if uh, if you were my coach of my team, is because like the adaptability type of thing mainly, and that combined with like the inventiveness thing, those things are a little bit different, but they overlap quite a bit as well. I think of the Clippers series where the Nuggets uh, came back from a three-one deficit, and it was very clear, like people around the team, like all the analysts or um, where they called them, like the people in the video room, all the stat guys on the team were all telling Doc Rivers that they needed to stop playing Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell, at least not as much as they had been, 
because their minutes are where they are completely getting waffle stomped. And uh, Doc Rivers was like, he basically just told everybody no and was like, no, I'm just going to ride with my guys. I'm not going to change anything because I believe in my guys, which, you know, you can. I think that's where his player personnel, like player uh, relations part of it comes, you know, shines through as like that's something that he's very high in. And you can, you know, that's, I guess, admirable, at least that he believes in his guys that much. But at the same time, that is what lost them that series. And then also the Trey Young, Atlanta Hawks series, you know, Ben Simmons, everything. I've said this for a long time now, back when that series even happened. Like everybody made such a big deal of the Ben Simmons situation, which it it was a very big deal. And they would have won the series if Ben Simmons was just any semblance of himself and played well. But also they still might have won the series even without Ben Simmons if Doc Rivers would have chosen at all to exploit Trey Young and some of the other Hawks players, to be honest, on the defensive end. Like they would never mismatch Hunt like every team in the playoff does. <laughs> they would have lineups where they would have Trey Young, Lou Williams and Danilo Gallinari all on the floor at the same time. That should never happen. That should never be able to survive on on a playoff court. If it court. does, it gets punished. Yeah. It gets punished. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that's completely mind boggling that that even happened. And especially this is what another thing that gives me a little, I guess, a glimpse through the window of like what it is. You know, Doc Rivers as a basketball coach, it says a lot that he wouldn't exploit something like that, especially when from personal experience, he knows he should know at least what it's what it means to do that and how debilitating or destructive it is to your team because he coached both of those players on the Clippers and they are their whole careers have been targets on, on the defensive end. I just don't get it. I don't know why he wouldn't serve it back in the same way, like exploit the same thing that he has had exploited of himself for many years. Absolutely. And we can kind of go to that player relations because I think that's the thing where Doc Rivers does really well. Because mm-hmm. I think guys like playing for Doc Rivers for the most, like, I don't think that that's ever the qualm that they have with them. I think the all-time example of this is uh, the miraculous abilities of Phil Jackson able to, like, balance a lot of very large personalities. Steve Kerr is a modern example yep. that did a good job with that uh, Warriors team, especially when you see all the behind-the-scenes stuff with how difficult Draymond can be to work with. I mean, even this year we've seen Draymond and Jordan Poole and that just whole James Wiseman and that just locker room did not seem like a fun place to be, but Kerr's seemingly navigated all right and he does a really good job of that player relations. But I think the importance of that is like the Hawks situation because the Hawks on paper are not as bad as they are in real life Mm -mm. looking strictly at the pieces. Yep. And I'm not saying Nate McMillan's bad at it, but when you have something that's so cancerous as Trey Young appears to be on the outside allegedly, I don't know, I've never talked to Trey Young, but from all the stories you hear, a coach that couldn't quite get all that reeled in or Steve Nash before he got fired in Brooklyn. Yeah, or that was a good one. There's like there's an unfortunate ton of examples of like not being able to reel in all of the things like that that yeah. brings out a team and it's it's not on the coach's shoulders. A lot of the time that's why the coaches have those Udonis Haslam's, those DeAndre Jordans, those locker room vet presences that like a vet that can tell a second year player, you need to sit down. Like, let's calm down. Let's think about it. This is a locker room and you're making it a bad place to be in our door. Team will be bad. Mm-hmm. Like coaches might lean on those guys, but they have, they're a huge part of that as well. Um, and I think that that's a uh, under, underappreciated, under realized thing that guys have and some guys just don't. And that's why the guys that don't, I don't think, stick around. Because I think you have to have almost all of these to be a successful coach. You can't be like, oh, I'm really good in two of these, but not so great in the other three because you'll just fall apart. Like Van Gundy, 
great X's and O's guy. Not super adaptable. Never really, she kind of developed, but I think development is probably his worst one. And we're talking about Stan. Yeah, yeah. But X's and O's, he's smart. He just like he, you can't take that away from him. But he struggles in the other things. So that's like a they're all important, equally important mm-hmm. for player relations. What are some guys that you thought of when I kind of brought that up before we started recording and that you see in like today's NBA that you think do a really nice job of it? Okay, on the good side, I'd say Greg Popovich. You know, he, he's not in the same way that you think of the, the other guys like the Phil Jacksons and the Steve Kerrs who are more like the gentle, you know, leader. Greg Popovich is kind of like cool and prickly with his personality. But at the same time, like he's very his players respect him greatly. And, you know, he treats all of the Spurs players like the Spurs culture. You know, everybody always talks about heat culture, but Spurs culture is like something that's very unique as well in the NBA. Where, you know, after every single game they play, uh, they all go out to dinner. And if, you know, they play with the team that they play against, if any of those players have ever played on the Spurs before, they're all invited to the dinner as well. So that type of thing, you know, can go a long way. Uh, Michael Malone, honestly, I said time management is one of his best, but I think player relations is his by far his best, especially with like the important players on the team like Jamal and Michael or uh, Jokic. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to highlight that. With with the people that are like important, very important to have a good relationship with because Bones was not did not turn out well. <laughs> well. Even before Bones, there's just always been like not necessarily bad, but it, it just I don't feel like he ever has like openly bad relationships mm-hmm. with his players. But there, it's like you hear about his great relationship with Jokic and with Murray, but like MPJ early was really rocky. And I don't think it, to be honest, I don't know if, cause that, that kind of like overlaps into the player development side. Like he, he was so bad at playing those guys minutes that yeah, ma- that might've hurt their relationship. Oh, but from like coach to player, a lot of times I feel like he gave them reasons in that department to believe in him as the coach, you know, mm-hmm. but that's, I guess my take on it. Like, like MPJ, I didn't highlight this at all before when I was talking about him, but like not enough credit has been given to him nationally, like league wide uh, this season for how much he's bought into a role this year, how much he's sacrificed. Yeah, because have just how talented of a player he is, but he's very willing to play whatever role is asked of him. And I think his relationship with Michael Malone has a big part in that. So and then we're still talking about good ones, right? I, I, I'll give you well, another. We could, we could flip to bad. Yeah. If you got another good, then we can go good. I have like three, like this was very impromptu. You know, I had not prepared anything for this, but three that I thought of for bad just while you were talking. And I was like, wow, this is great. I thought of three amazing ones. <laughs> They're all like contenders for like probably the worst ones that I can, you know, uh, muster up. But the for good, though, um, I think that Eric Spolstra is up there as well. Um, I think you could argue that Eric Spolstra is like all of, top everything. five in all of yeah. these. It's kind of funny, but it's it's kind of like Pat Riley also, how he was as a coach. And now he's the GM of Eric Spolstra's team. Well, and I think you'll see also the uh, with Spolstra, like his career's halfway, if even that. If he goes till old, mm-hmm. we're not even halfway done with what he's going to do and – He's got a whole lot of basketball left coaching, and he already is regarded as one of those guys. Yeah. So that's that's a good thing, yeah. Doesn't he feel like the farthest, like even more than Steve Kerr, to be honest, the number one coach in the league, the farthest away from, I guess, not counting Greg Popovich, but he's close to the end, you know? Like Eric Spolstra with the Heat, the end is nowhere in sight. Like it's not even close to being on the hot seat at all. Like, you know what I mean? There's He has so much freedom. No, he could like... Let's say after this year, the Heat are going to be bad because I think they will be once they start. Like, the guys are getting older. They can't rely on Jimmy Butler to do everything. 
he could have almost a decade of like, ooh, that's a little rough. And still probably they'd be like, hey, can we maybe make a, a play-in tournament push? Like, that's all he would need to do. I think you'll always see the Heat be competitive, though, is the thing, because... That's who he is. They they are... Yeah, them and maybe the Raptors, the Grizzlies in recent years have kind of been like this, too. But the Heat have always been this way, where they're, like, the best team in the league at taking undrafted players, people that nobody... it was They were on nobody's radar, and immediately they're contributing players in a rotation on their team and it's like how like he scrapes every little bit of value out of like the players like that to play on his teams because all he does is ask him to do like hey you were in a college basketball player and in the nba because of this reason all i want you to do is do this and i will find a job and a place for you Mm -hmm. just do this Mm -hmm. and help me out on defense if you're any of the white guys in the pastures that have shot three for the heat pick your name (laughs) yeah like do that yeah. and help me a little tiny bit on defense and you'll have a job. And like they just do that yeah. with every position just kind of slowly. And it's it's quite remarkable. Um, I didn't for mm-hmm. I guess if we, if I knew we were talking about coaches, I should have foreseen a little bit of a flower parade or a flower shower for Eric Spolstra. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's pretty elite in all of them. Um, did you have another good one or do you want to flip to the uh, not so great side of the NBA for player relations? So again, uh, we're talking about Player relations, these are like the categories of like the five we picked, time management, player relations, uh, or we changed time management to more game awareness, player relations, development, adaptability, slash inventiveness, and then X's and O's are the five categories. What are the bad player relations three that you thought of? Bad player relations. Okay, so the three that came to mind, the first one was the most recent. Yeah, it definitely was the most recent. And I, I think that might be up there for just the like the undisputed goat or you know the opposite of a goat <laughs> for for this category a woat worst of all time yeah worst of all time and that was Nate Bjorkgren with the Pacers <laughs> that was so that fell apart so fast and it was like the ugliest situation that I can remember with a coach and and his players like it was oh, like there was one time um who punched their coach latrell sprewell choked pj carlissimo that's what i was thinking that was pretty bad yeah but i don't did the pacers even make it to the regular season i feel like things like i feel like their locker room started to implode before the first before opening night no i think they made it i think they might have finished the whole season no they did with him i'm just saying like oh oh the yeah tension no. of like this is things were blowing up yeah was like opening night bad yeah i guess i'm not sure exactly when it started the first thing i can remember though was a fight that broke out between goga batadze and the uh okay i can't remember his name but he is a former player that was on the assistant you know the coaching staff with the pacers him and that guy and, and goga got in a fight about something and then they you know they were drawing back and forth at each other and then they they basically just came at each other and like the whole Pacers team had to like break it up and that was like mid game and then all of the players like everybody wanted Nate Bjorkren gone like everybody hated him <laughs> and then he was right back on Nick Nurse's bench immediately after that for which is where he came from so that's where he is now but that yeah that one was very short lived and especially because of how like how hyped I guess he wasn't like super hyped, but there was a lot of people that had hopes for him as a coach because there were like all these stories about him as an X's and O's guy with Nick Nurse. Like he's really important with the Raptors. And so we were like, oh, the Pacers, they got the next, you know, prodigy or whatever. But like Becky, uh, Becky Hammond with Popovich, like just like crazy great. And she went and actually did great things in WNBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, I'm sure she'll be the first female to get a head coaching job. If when it happens, inevitably it'll be her. Because it's actually I didn't watch a whole lot of WNBA, but that is a well coached uh, Vegas team. Mm. Fun fact, if you didn't know. Uh, but anyway, that was a totally uh, off off the cuff random no thing to throw in there. But I can uh, I love that you brought that one up because I kind of forgot about it a little bit. Yeah, how just ugly that like experiment was of like what if we get a guy that's just like only basketball and not like human interaction. Yeah, that like it was just an experiment and it did not work in Indiana. And I don't know if it would work anywhere. Yeah. Um, but no, that that's a great one. Yeah. He just failed right out of the gates. I think he, he came in with it with a certain attitude, trying to set a certain tone, and it just fell right on his face. Like, he had some workshopping with that to do. And then the other examples that I thought of that are horrendous are one that I don't think made it far into the season at all. I think it was like a handful of games, like five or six games, and he got fired in the first season. And that wasn't that long ago. It was with Cleveland. It was John Beeline, the you know the legendary Michigan head coach. Um, he called all of his players thugs, <laughs> um, and then later tried to make up for it or tried to you know twist it and say that he called them. I can't remember what he said that he called them. It was like slugs or it's something that rhymes with thugs that apparently is not as bad uh, that he said he he called them instead. Yeah, so that that didn't turn out great, and that ended pretty fast. Um, and then the other one was one that went on for a, a while, but especially with his best player or one of his best players at the time. Probably, yeah, no, it was his best player. Definitely didn't get along with him, and was very you know apparent during games. Was Jim Boylan and uh, the Chicago Bulls with Zach Levine. And, you know, Jim Boylan, there were stories of him, like, having the players punch in, like, time cards when they would come into the facility, like, every day. <laughs> and, like, he tried to make it more of, like, a blue-collar job to them type of thing. And, yeah, Zach Levine was not a fan of him at all, got into arguments frequently with him on the court. So, yeah, that that's another good example. I think he was, he might have been the coach also at the time when Bobby Portis punched Nikola Mirotic in practice. <laughs> oh. That might have been on that team. I'm not sure of that though, um, but yeah, those are those are the bad ones. Uh, and it was slugs to confirm. He he said slugs, not thugs. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> Moving on. I think a good intro. Uh, if you have a good relationship with your players, you probably need to develop them. That's number three. What are some guys? Um, there's some names that come to my brain that are like all-time great development, where they get a guy. And he just does a great job. You kind of touched on uh, Eric Spolster already, how he like takes the bottom of the barrel, scrapes it, and then finds a whole bunch of white three-point shooters underneath the bottom of the barrel. I'm saying that's the only thing that he finds, but he, he gets more types of players than just that. Um, so development, who are some other guys outside of Spolster that you really feel like are A-tier elite player development coaches? I would throw Kenny Atkinson in that, even though he's not even, is he? No, yeah, he's not a head coach right now. I think he's on the Warriors bench. But, you know, in his couple of stints as a head coach, uh, especially with Brooklyn, um, that might have been his only head head coaching. He was the assistant with Budenholzer in Atlanta and that, you know, very famous bench that all of those guys got head coaching jobs eventually. Um, but he, in his time in Brooklyn, completely turned turned around a franchise that was considered like completely dead and screwed for the next decade and like made them into a fun entertaining uh team that had like made some noise in the playoffs as a six seed and on the flip side of that a team that historically is a poverty program has had three shining lights new head coach that i think is a a-tier developmental guy or at least 
unlocking the most of a player's potential is Mike Brown. Mm. Because the Kings, they got all these pieces. A lot of those pieces were there. They didn't work together all that well. Development might not be the word for what Mike Brown does, but I feel like he kind of fits into the same thing. But he elevates players to play at their highest potential. I think Mike Brown is a guy that I thought of, as well as Chris Finch. Granted, the T-Wolves have not had the most success since he took over, but I don't think anybody that's played for the T-Wolves has gotten worse. I think Vanderbilt is a great example of a guy that like just ex- yeah. just exploded in his role when he got under Finch. Uh, so Chris Finch is a guy that I thought of as well yeah. outside of Mike I th- Brown. I you- think last season for Finch was, yeah, a great, great uh, showcase of that. This season has been a little bit rough, but I don't think that's really all his fault either. Because <laughs> the guys he did develop just got sent to other things for Rudy Gobert. Mm-hmm. So you can you can only do so much with uh, a, a great regular season. But he still has Jaden McDaniels, who was like people were scared of in the draft. Like the Nuggets should have drafted him, but they didn't. <laughs> The, you know, the Timberwolves were, it was considered that they were taking a swing on him because of, you know, he was a very highly touted prospect coming out of high school or recruit, you know, coming into college and then had one of the like biggest fall from Grace's freshman seasons that you could think of at Washington. And then late first round, Minnesota was like, hey, we'll take a flyer on this guy. And, you know, Chris Finch, even though a lot of people doubted Jaden McDaniels, didn't think that he would turn into much. Uh, he had a lot of flop potential. Uh, Chris Finch, you know, has I'm not going to say credit with him with all of it, but it's a good indicator, you know, that he's turned out good under Chris Finch. So and for a lot of these things, the players obviously are the biggest part because it's the players doing the playing. But like, yeah, it's just being a great coach is being a great facilitator. That should have been one of the categories. Just, fo- I guess that's kind of all these things are just fostering players mm-hmm. to be the best version or best, uh, get the most out of the players, whether it's because they're playing harder or or um, anything like that. I think of Mon- Monty Williams also, I, I want to throw in there for development, I think is pretty good. He was with, you know, Chris Paul and, and those guys with yep. in New Orleans a long time ago. And then now with Phoenix um, has done a good job getting them to the place they need to be. Obviously, the Aiton situation is the big uh, blemish. <laughs> on that one but other than that it's been pretty good and that might be more relationship side than yeah develop his ability to develop guys because you could i would personally argue that chris paul's what made that sun's team be a finals appearance and be this like he's what unlocked that portion of them but like devin booker was steadily getting better than he made a big leap you'll never know if that's because of the things that they were doing coaching wise with him or if it was exclusively because chris paul was there also yeah chris paul had a lot to do with it but i'd I'd like to think that uh, oh, Monty Williams had a lot as and well. And Mark Dagnall is awesome as a player development guy with the Thunder. Oh, yeah. Taylor Jenkins also with the the Grizzlies. Um, yep. Forgot to mention him. The, like, those are some of my favorite guys as young coaches. James Borrego I thought James was good. James Borrego. Yeah. Or Borrego, yeah, before he got fired, which I didn't yeah. get. And they hired the opposite of him and Steve Clifford, which is he's one of the, like, we haven't talked about the worst guys in player development. Yeah. Steve Clifford is probably right at the top of that. Another guy, Michael Malone. I'm I'm not going to put him as high as some of these other guys, though, because I think he has done well in the parts. Like, when the Nuggets weren't good, he was able to at least uh, play the young guys, find some, you know potential with those young guys and develop them Mm -hmm. which is way more than steve clifford has ever done because even when steve clifford is on you know has the worst roster in the nba he will play mason Plumlee 36 minutes or like he plays the like all of the veteran players as much as he can and does not play any of the young guys tom thibodeau is like that as well uh but thibodeau usually has a lot better rosters 
and it's not as noticeable because... Because people, I think, realize that maybe GMs have just understood that Thibodeau, not the guy for a rebuilding team. Yeah. If you need, if you have a bunch of offensive flamethrowers and need them to just be a little bit tougher-nosed, Tibbs is your guy. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I thought it was smart by New York front office this offseason to get rid of most of the old veteran players on the team that Tibbs played too much and gave him less options there. So he has to play quickly and those guys a little bit more. And then I think those guys have grown on him when they got an opportunity to play. He's like, yeah, this is this is who I should have played. Obi top in another one for that. Yep. Yeah. So that kind of not wraps up development. Is there any other big blaring? I'm terrible at player development that's echoing in your brain. Um, there's yeah, I said Steve Clifford. I said, who's the guy we just <laughs> my brain is like a goldfish. Tibbs. Yeah, Tibbs. We said that. I honestly, I don't have a lot. Um, I feel like we haven't really talked about Steve Kerr at all. I don't think he he fits in this. I think, yeah. Um, well, I mean, we touched on him a little bit with player relations because he oh, yeah, halfway he balanced that whole craziness. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's a lot of times where I've wanted to just being the Celtics guy. Like, oh, but then I was like, well, like, Brad Stevens wasn't a great player relations guy and Ime Udoka was. Yeah. He was actually uh, – but not great at regular people relations, <laughs> just player relations. But then, like – I feel like uh, Missoula's a good player relations guy, a good X's and O's guy, but I worry about the next category that is on my list, and that is adaptability and inventiveness. Because he's a young guy in the NBA. A lot of people thought he was too early to be a coach. Like, this is too early for him to get. He's the full coach now, no longer interim. People were, like, a little bit questioning that. Um, And it's because, like, he just kind of is like, the Jays will bail me out. We're going to go play offense. That's how we're going to do it. It'll look different. It won't be this iso ball monstrosity that it was the first half of the 2021 season. But, like, he doesn't adapt all that much. And playoffs is when the adapting really matters. So we will see as we get later into this regular season if things kind of start to shift or if he just relies on one of the better talent rosters in the NBA to carry him or if he's able to do some things on the coaches. Yeah. There's my one Celtics blip. I'll stop now. But I just wanted to No, feel free to talk about Celtics whenever you want. Joe Missoula, I feel like from the coaching tree he comes from, he seems like a, the type of guy who would be more adaptable. But, you know, I, I guess I can't say for sure. He's young. He's young. And that's the only reason that I got. He's, I'm sure he will. I think we're going to, if he stays in Boston, I won't have complaints at head coach for a very long time. I don't think that'll be where I'm like, oh, we're short of head coach. That'll never be the problem. Are you saying you're, you're worried about his, his adaptability and inventiveness because he's young? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, because I, I feel like it's typically the other way around, at least for most old, like Doc Rivers, Mike Budenholzer, yep. old-fashioned guys that are married to their ideas, like they're, they suck at <laughs> adapting um, and making adjustments. And maybe adapting isn't the right word, but like we're winning by 25 and Jason Tatum's still playing in a double back-to-back night. Oh, okay. And and like and not like and maybe that's more yeah, game I awareness. Yeah, that's more game management type of skill. Yeah, and so and maybe that's what but that's what my brain was like. First night of a doubleheader, we're up by twenty-five. Four of the five stars are still playing. Why? Mm-hmm. Type of thing. Because in playoffs, that all matters. The wear and tear of every game adds up. Yeah. And so I love load management. I'm going to lose my fantasy league because of load management, and it's fine. That's my fault for of drafting the greatest fantasy basketball team to ever be assembled. But uh, I'm going to go down in the semis because of load management. It's a bummer. Because <laughs> I didn't have Jason Tatum for two games. I didn't have Shea Gilgis-Alexander for two games. Yeah. Um, I didn't have – this is totally – this is more just talking to you. But, yeah. Um, 
I missed out on Laurie Markkinen for I think three of the games in this in this two week series. Jeez, because he just everything got load managed. That's unfortunate. I changed my name to I love load management. <laughs> oh yeah, you you told me that. Yeah. Uh, adaptability and inventiveness was our next category. Is there any coach that screams? I am adaptable. Uh, Ty Lue, I think, is number one in this. Maybe not. It's like the thing is, it's it might not be because he has a great uh, basketball. Br- I'm not saying that he doesn't have a great basketball brain. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I guess I'm all I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter whether he does or not. It seems like he just he he tries literally anything. Like he's very quick and whatever sticks. Yeah, he quick shuffles through a bunch of different things and then things that are that seem to be working. He's like, let's just keep doing that. You know, it's like if he has a very simple coaching philosophy, but it seemed to be very effective. So, yeah, I like Ty Lue for that reason. I think that Nick Nurse is right up there with with Ty Lue in this category. And for like the almost exact opposite, how you're like, I'm not really sure what Ty Lue's basketball IQ is. Nick Nurse is the opposite. Yeah. Whenever he's like, I'm going to throw this at the wall. It's because I've been cooking it in my brain for the past 48 hours. Yeah. And it'll stick. And if it doesn't stick, I've got a backup plan. Like it's the opposite way that they approach. It feels like on yeah. the outside. Yeah. And I think I think also that Nick Nurse is more inventive. Like he comes up with better ideas. Like Ty Lue, it seems like he just kind of like is toggling, fiddling with things a lot. Shuffling personnel more than like yeah. play differently. Mm-hmm. The same five guys on the court. Yeah. And Nick Nurse seems like he's a lot more tactical with, with how he he's very unorthodox in a lot of the things he tries. So I think that goes right through or that's basically the definition of <laughs> inventiveness. Well, and that could also make kind of because like if you look at like the teams in the East and the West, I don't want the Clippers or the Raptors round one. Mm-hmm. That's not a team you want to get in the first round, despite where they sit in the rankings. Like both those teams could be a first round matchup for a one or a two seed. Like they could both come out of the plan and you'd be like, that is an unfortunate draw mm-hmm. to get those two teams. And I think a huge part of it is because both of those teams not as much the Clippers, but like the Raptors are just like an X's and O's guys just playground because it's a bunch of like tall, lanky guys that kind of run around and can do whatever if you shuffle them in the right way. But and I think it's a big part of it because of the adaptability and inventiveness. Is there another guy that you thought of on that scale um, um, outside of those two? There's a guy that isn't a coach anymore technically because he's a GM now, but that is Brad Stevens. A lot of the chess matches that him and Nick Nurse had against each other. Um, actually, there, there might have only been one, but it just feels like so memorable that it was, there was multiple. It was a seven-game series. I think there was I think there was two. It might have only been one, and then the regular season, all the games were like close and back and forth. That might have been what it was. But mm-hmm. no, I am, I, um, yeah. I, I think it was the second round of maybe the 2020 playoffs or no 2021 somewhere in there but he uh basically it was back and forth like one guy would completely change try something new and the other guy would do something in response i think rick carlisle honestly is really good at this and but he's very bad in the player development we forgot to mention that i think rick carlisle is not good in player not development i meant uh relations rick carlisle not great relations department there's been lots of people that I've heard through the years like of players when they bring him up or they talk about him. They're like, most players that have played for him don't like him. <laughs> uh, Luca definitely didn't like him. Uh, that's why the Mavs didn't keep him. But as far as adaptability and, you know, trying new things and X's and O's, like the kind of combination of those things, he's really good in that. And, and there's, I guess, Eric Sprolstra, like yeah. basically just chalk him up for every all of these categories I think the concept... Imagine that... Oh, sorry, we're not on X's and O's yet, but imagine a film room guy 
is good at like reading a situation and adapting off of it. How crazy. Yeah. I was just about to say like X's and O's, there's kind of a gray area between that and I guess like adaptability and inventiveness. But I think where like some examples of coaches where I feel like I would say that they're really good in the X's and O's department, but they're not good in the adaptability department are uh, Steve Kerr. And I, I guess I shouldn't say that he's not adaptable at all, but he threw the death death lineup at you or else he was like, crap, what else do we do? Yeah. And also there's especially in recent years, there's been tons of Warriors fans that have really not been on the good side with of, of Steve Kerr. Like they're not very in favor of how he's been as their head coach recently. Um, some of the decisions he's made and stuff. So there's that part of it. But at the same time, he's orchestrated and, and kind of designed this very well-oiled machine of an offense that it just, it's kind of perfect. It's a, it's obviously it would not work without Steph Curry as the center of that ecosystem, but he, you couldn't really imagine a better system for Steph Curry as well. So for Steph, for Clay or for Draymond, yeah. like those three guys that I feel like, and Steph and Clay, I think would have succeeded almost anywhere mm-hmm. to a certain level, but they are, I think, optimized. Draymond, I'm a little bit more on the fence. I don't know if he would have succeeded to this level. Take out the championships because four championships is not an easy thing Realistic, to do. Realistic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like even to like the NBA all team, like I don't know if he would have gotten to that level and not just been like a Patrick Beverly, this kind of just like bulldog, angry person that is just kind of like a PJ Tucker that's your like bruiser. Yeah. Like I don't know if he wouldn't have been anything more than that on a team outside of the Warriors. Yeah. Potentially. That's true. Um, um, and then other guys, because I think this is actually a pretty common thing where you have guys that are good X's and O's, uh, good at X's and O's, but not great in the adaptability department. And that another guy I have for that is Quinn Snyder and uh, Mike Budenholzer, which we I think we already talked about him with adaptability not being good. But at the very beginning, that was the opening of like the door. He's getting better. Yeah. Um, but like he is why the Bucks would leave in the second round like clockwork or first round like clockwork because he was like Giannis just bullying for offense doesn't work in the playoffs exclusively when that's our only offense. Uh, that's wild. Uh, and I guess this is maybe a good time to kind of transit or if we've got more that are just terrible adaptable guys, but because uh, we have kind of like slowly accidentally transitioned to X's and O's, which is the last category. Oh, I thought we like did on purpose. I, I, might, I might have done it on X. Oh, yeah, that's my bad. But no, it's no, it's perfect. That's what a smooth transition is. <laughs> I didn't realize I did it. But uh, this, I kind of just had a brain explosion while you were talking that I wanted to spew out because like this is basically the reason why I wanted to talk about this topic, like the the coaching thing, is because Mike Budenholzer, I think I'm I'm kind of tired of hearing so many people on podcasts and stuff, and including me and you, like how we've talked in the past, where we we like kind of very tersely or shortly uh, write a uh, write a coach off as like not good or bad or you know, and then I recently listened to. Austin Rivers podcast that he has on the ringer now. Um, and he was talking about how he's confused at why so many people criticize doc, you know, his dad, like he basically went into like how he, he thinks that doc rivers is one of the best coaches of all time. And a lot of people think that, and uh, you know, there's a lot of people that don't think that it's, he's like really divisive, but you know, he clear, like it was very clear that he was like, he could not understand the, the things that he's criticized for. But I think there's something to be said about the things that make him a great coach because like to call Doc Rivers a bad basketball coach is just like, it's in gen, it's not right. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's clearly been very successful to a certain standard, you know, like, like far more successful than most coaches have been in their careers. 
But at the same time, he has these big glaring weaknesses that have been kind of exploited or shown a spotlight on over the years. And so that kind of just makes me think of like the concept of like, I don't know, I kind of just want to bring more nuance to the idea of coaching. Like it's it's kind of hard to call like a coach good or bad, to be honest. Like it's like it's very situational and, you know, it needs to be contextualized into uh, the right circumstances. So like Mike Budenholzer, for example, how over the years, his biggest flaw was game planning, like um, changing his his scheme being able to make adjustments and exploit the weaknesses and things that were, you know, uniquely dependent to that matchup. But then the thing that he's unbelievable at and like the thing that I, I think he just doesn't get enough credit for because, you know, it, some people might write it off and say, well, it's not the playoffs. You know, it's just the regular season. He's a really good regular season coach. And so he's a bad coach if he can't coach in the playoffs. It's like, OK, but if he's that like not good of a coach, how, why can nobody do what he's done <laughs> as a regular season coach, like he does things that people clearly don't, other coaches can't do throughout their careers. And he, like he's able to design a system with whatever he had at, at his disposal. He designs this system around his, his roster that he's thinking in a vacuum of like across the board statistics, more often than not, what is the best thing to do here in this situation? Okay. We're always going to do that. What is the best thing to do here in this situation? We're always going to do that. And so across a big sample of games, he's going to win a lot more than other people just because he it's like a statistics thing. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, where he comes into trouble is in the playoffs where he's playing against a team that maybe those things don't work quite as well against or just because they know what you're going to do, they, they adapt their game plan and those things become less of an advantage to you. Um, you need to be able to respond and, you know, change things around to try to combat that. But he just tries to stick to it. Other than the season that they won the title, that season was the first year they started switching screens uh, throughout the, the regular season, trying new things throughout the regular season. That's why the record wasn't as good and probably cost Giannis a, a third straight MVP, to be honest. Um, but they were able to win the title instead. So I think that, you know, he wouldn't trade that in. Legacy wise, I think he's OK. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like my galaxy brain thought that I had <laughs> had about uh, Mike Budenholzer, that it's like he's an unbelievable coach in the way that he has succeeded, but also he's had big flaws that have held him back in other areas. And that's, yeah, that's the complexity, I guess, of NBA coaching. I don't know if we even need to say anything more on this, unless you have anything to add. No, I don't. That was that was a really great way to kind of put everything with a bow. Um, mm -hmm. Something to think about for all you gamer listeners. Um, if you haven't yet, head on over to patreon.com. Hoop Theory, mm. support the homie Logan as he uh, uh, vent ventures further beyond into this podcasting universe. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, like this video 69 times if it's on YouTube. Uh, leave a comment. Give the podcast five stars. Uh, Did you want to do the game? That's all. Oh, the game. I totally forgot. Yes, I'd love to do the game. If you don't want to, we don't have to. But No, I, I'm, I've got the game ready. Okay. We can just do your three because me guessing I think is less entertaining for people. Really? Or recording wise, we can just do yours. We can do both. It won't hurt my feelings. I, I want to do both. I like I like okay hitting it back and forth. The the du the duality. Okay. First round softball. You ready for this? Yes, I am ready. Uh, for you, we stop giving college right um, as the first. Thing. I think the first thing I like to hear is height. Six foot five for your first player. Okay. By the way, you might hear me typing. I'm not. I'm not cheating. I'm just getting my page ready for Jacob's players. 
Okay, you said six foot five. These are Max Struess. Negative. Uh, they are two hundred twenty pounds listed. That is like very accurate for Max Struess. Six five two twenty. Um, six five two twenty. So a bit of a of a tank. I'm gonna go with. No, I think PJ Tucker's heavier than that. To be honest. Okay, I'm gonna go with Malcolm Brogdon. No, this player is. 33 years, 205 days old. Interesting. 33, almost 34, 6'5". He's, he's currently playing. Yes, sir. Oh, is he is he a superstar? Or he was? He's, pre- he, he's, he's pretty good. Three-time scoring champ. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was avoiding the 10-time All-Star, three-time scoring champ. Yeah. Uh, Arizona State Sun Devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Beard, El Chapo, Jimbo Slice. <laughs> Jimbo Slice, I love that nickname. Honey Bun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yours. Do you want me to just give you college and drafted and, and current team? Yeah, let's do. Yes, yeah. Okay, and I'll use their, I really want to say his nicknames, <laughs> but I'll give you those after okay. as like a bonus. So his college that he went to is Louisville. Montrez Harrell. No, it's not Montrez Harrell. Did he go to, he went to Louisville, right? I'm not saying Yes, that. yeah, he did. Okay. I think this guy was, he was definitely there before Montrez. So I gave you another hint. But he got drafted to the Jazz. Like, he, technically, you know, what it says on Basketball Reference, Jazz drafted him, but his draft rights were traded to, uh, let me look at my notes, sorry, the Wolves, Minnesota. So that's where he spent most of the beginning of his career, was Minnesota. Louisville. Scary Terry, no, because of the T-Wolves. Donovan Mitchell, not a T-Wolves guy. Wes Unseld, I think, was a Louisville Cardinal, but he did not play. <laughs> yeah, they're Cardinals, right? Yeah, Louisville Cardinals. Yeah, it, but I'm pre- okay, I, better, I could be totally wrong. Wes Unseld might have not gone. I have no idea, to be honest, where you <laughs> was on uh, But it's not him, because he was a bullet. Yeah. Um, this is a current player. He He's currently on the Spurs. T-Wolf currently on the Spurs. Spurs player, Spurs. Oh, uh, Gorgie Jang. Gorgie Jang, yep. His nicknames, Senegalese Sniper. Oh, that's a great one. And the Trebuchet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which I think is awesome. I don't know why he's called the Trebuchet, but might be like maybe a shooting form or something. But yeah, three and D center. Honestly, came into the league a little bit early. If he came in a little bit later, he would have been prime time for the type of player he is. Okay, you ready? Yes. Standing at six foot seven and one hundred and ninety pounds. Lamella Ball. No. Wow. Okay. You. Yeah. Give me another thing. I. I. I mean, I probably have some more guesses, but okay. I, I don't know how you want to do this. They are twenty-four years and two hundred and four days old. Twenty-four. They, they have the same birthday as this other. James What's his birthday? You said. Uh, well, it, it's uh, twenty-four. Oh, you didn't say it. I twenty-four and two hundred four. I guess I told you August twenty-seventh of nineteen ninety-eight is where that puts them. Six seven one ninety. James Harden's birthday is August twenty-sixth of nineteen eighty-nine. Oh really? So, uh, shout out to uh, random NBA player generator for giving me touching birthday guys. Yeah, interesting. This guy's six months older than me. How depressing is that? That uh, six months that he's in the NBA and I'm still just a fat guy in the middle of Nebraska. <laughs> he hails from Albany, New York, of the United States. Oh, um, Kevin Herter. Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah, it's I knew, Kevin Herter. I knew he's from upstate New York. I knew that. Kavon, Red Mamba, Red Velvet, and the Headband Hunter. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of thinking of him for those dimensions, oh, but Headband Herter. Sorry, not Hunter. I misheard. Yeah, Red Velvet is one of the best nicknames in the NBA, I think. But yeah, I wasn't thinking of him for those dimensions, but that yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so yours. Uh, this player went to Baylor University. Torian Prince. Yes. Yeah, let's go. You got it right off the bat. Let's go. Nice. Part of that team that broke my heart and soul. 
Yeah. Let's see if he has any nicknames. Probably not. Where it says nicknames for most people, it just says full name is Torian Waller Prince. Uh, Waller Baller. Yeah. Like a hyphenated last name. Like his actual last name legally is Waller Prince. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Here we go. I will get the proper, instead of just a Wikipedia page of this player, I will get the basketball reference. Okay. This player, this is a throwback. No longer in the league. Okay. Good to know. As your as your third player always is. They stand at six foot 10, 240 pounds as their official measurements, according to basketball reference. Moses Malone. No. Okay. Was I close at all with era? Like eight, 70s, 80s? No. No. Okay. My, okay. My brain always mixes up Carl and Moses, what eras they play. I know that's yeah. stupid, but Moses I have to think about it. Carl. I have to think about it for like too long. Yeah. Um, but you know, it is, it's more Carl era. Okay. Six, you said 6'10", right? Six foot 10, 240 pounds. Hakeem Olajuwon. No. I think he'd be a little bit bigger than that. But This is a two-time NBA block champion. Oh, and it's not Hakeem Olajuwon. It is not. It's not Dikembe. It is not Dikembe Mutombo. I feel terrible. Who did this guy play? I'm not wrong, am I? Um, okay. I? His dimensions work for Sergi Baca, but I don't this, think that's this there. This guy does general. not play yeah. anymore. This is a Hall of Famer. 6'10", 240, Hall of Famer, two-time block champ. Is he known as like a defensive player? Though? He was, in fact, the defensive player of the year twice. Okay, that helps me, I think. I'll say it's not Patrick Ewing, but like the size. I just can't stop thinking about Patrick Ewing. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Brad Doherty. <laughs> no, my Carl Malone thing, I'm a little worried. Like I super led you astray. Oh, okay. Yeah, you should look up. They, when... they played at the same time when just, did he retire? Can you, I mean, you were on his per game stuff. Just what season was his first one and what season was his last one? 92 and 08. Oh, okay. So after. Like, but I thought Malone played to like 04. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. But Malone had a, a oddly long career. Okay, so that's what um, messed me up. So, I, yeah. No, that's fine. I was just thinking of guys like... He's a 90s like, basketball player in my mind. Okay, that's fair. 92, and he was Defensive Player of the Year. Is this... I mean, I don't think this is Ben Wallace, is it? Nope. Okay, then this is... Is this Chris Webber? Nope. 92, went, Juwan Howard. No, he went to Georgetown. Alonzo Mourning? Mm-hmm. Alonzo Mourning. I th- I thought he was a little bit older than that for some reason. I thought he his rookie year would have been in the late 80s. 92-93 okay. was his first year for the Charlotte Hornets. Yeah. I was going to say Miami Heat is his most known team. Either, yeah, either him, either the Heat or the Hornets were both pretty prominent. Um, he put, Fun fact, he only played for the Hornets for three years. Oh, really? He played for the Heat for one, but two, it, three, four, yeah, five, yeah. six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, he's probably definitely more prominent. But people remember, I think his that that early Hornets team in his career was very iconic, like him and Larry Johnson. Mm -hmm. So and Muggsy Bogues. Yeah. And my third one. Okay, your third player. All of of yours are honestly were pretty easy. That's good because I'm stupid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to agree with that. No, it's okay. That's a Freudian slip. I'm I'm basketball stupid. Like, I could probably do this with NFL guys, like, as successfully as you do NBA guys. Yeah, for sure. And there's 11 guys on my, on my, I'm on my field, so I have twice as many people to remember. That's true. Extremely true. Right, let's test that right, right after this. Okay. I will, okay, so this guy, he went to uh, Washington, University of Washington. Isaiah Thomas. No. And he went, his, he, he got drafted to the Toronto Raptors, and that's where he spent most of the beginning of his career. You'll probably remember this guy in a Raptors jersey when he retires. DeMar DeRozan went to USC. 
Paul Laurie. <laughs> he didn't go to Washington. He, he wasn't drafted to, and he wasn't drafted to Toronto. Oh, he was a Rocket for a while. He was Memphis first, and then Rockets, oh, and then um, Toronto. More, you know, um, he was Mike Conley's backup at the beginning. Okay, still in the league. Yeah, Washington, and then went to where? Uh, he got drafted to the Raptors. Raptors. You'll remember him as a Raptor, but he his nickname is Human Torch. Is this man a jump out the gym earlier in his career? Is this Terrence Ross? Yes, it is. Okay, I was like, because I knew I'd heard that before. The Human Torch thing. Really? I, I didn't. I don't know if I have. I think also some other time after an episode, we just started looking at NBA player nicknames. Yeah. And I feel like that might have been one yeah, that, that my brain up. just clicked with. Okay, I'm going to get a random NFL player generator. I'll give you three. NFL player generator. Okay, it gave me six right away, but I'll, okay. One of them, <laughs> I'll just give you. Michigan, uh, New England. Plays for New... Oh, Tom Brady? Yep. Oh, wow. That's wild. I, yeah, that was one of the six. Uh, okay, all of these guys are. I know who all of these people are. I think. Okay, I, I shouldn't. I I don't know who two of these six are. Okay. Very well, but they, their names sound familiar. Okay, so I'll give you the easier ones first. I gave you the easiest one right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So this guy went to. I didn't know this. Oh yeah. Okay, so he went to two colleges. I remember him for the second one. Um, I'll just tell you what the second one is. It's Wisconsin. Russell Wilson. First one was NC State. Nope. What? It's not him. Okay. And this guy, he's very prominent. This is a very, very well-known guy. But he went to, he got drafted to the Houston Texans. Oh, J.J. Watt. Because he yeah. went to, uh, oh, where did he go before Wisconsin? It's not too far from Wisconsin. Because he was a walk-on at Wisconsin, I thought. That may, would make sense based off of the, the other school. <laughs> what the other school is. Oh, I have no idea then. Is it some little school? I mean, I've heard of it, but it's not prominent no at all what is it central michigan oh okay dang i thought you gave me a softball with the russell wilson everybody else that's an nfl guy would be like second schools wisconsin went to two schools yeah because russell wilson was like a graduate transfer to wisconsin he played at nc state for four years i didn't know that yeah um, this other guy is uh, another well-known guy, um, but he college his college was Utah State. Utah State. Utah State. Uh, what position? Do you want me to give you the position, or do you want me to say where he got drafted? Oh, where he went? Where he got drafted to? Seattle. Seattle. Utah State. Seattle. He's a defensive player. I'll give you that. Who went to Utah State? He was drafted in the second round, the forty seventh overall pick of the twenty twelve NFL draft. Oh, shoot. Um, doesn't play for Seattle anymore. I don't think ah, so. Middle linebacker for the Legion of Boo. Um, uh, Sir Robert Wagner. Bobby yep. Wagner. Bobby Wagner. Yeah. At least I know who that is. Is he a well-known yep. guy? Okay. Yeah, yeah no, I am I was stupid. The Utah State thing, that's dumb that I didn't know. Yeah. And this other guy, I definitely know who he is. And I, I also definitely know that he is well-known. Um, and this guy went to Texas A&M for school. Johnny Manziel? No. Mike Evans? No. Von Miller? No. Okay. Uh, he was drafted to the Cleveland Browns in 2017. 2017 Cleveland Browns. First pick of the draft. This is harder than you think. Okay, that's not right. 2017 number one overall pick. Was it a tackle? Like an offensive tackle? Nope. He's 6'4", 272 pounds. He's a D.E. defensive end. His nickname is Superman or Bigfoot. <laughs> it literally says or, which I've never seen. Cleveland... Defensive end. Oh, it's Miles Garrett. I'm a yeah. potato. I'm a t- <laughs> the the Duck Hodges murderer. 
Yeah, he, he hit was, somebody I with think, the helmet. I think right? it was it wasn't Doug Hodges. Who did he hit with the helmet? I have no idea, but I remember that happening. That's where I first heard of Miles Garrett. That's wild. Mason Rudolph, he hit. Sorry, I pulled out a different obscure backup uh, quarterback for Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. Okay, this other these other two guys, I don't know. Um, you might though. I wouldn't be surprised. And this guy is from Notre Dame. Monty Teo. No, but he got drafted. In the first round to okay. the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys, Notre Dame. Where does he currently play? Does it tell you that? Um, he is still on the Cowboys. At least he was last season. First round. Okay, go through the Cowboys. We'll start on offense. Dakota is a Michigan or Mississippi State guy. Zeke Ohio State. Well, that would be the right guard, Zach Martin. Yep. Is a correct six four three fifteen. Okay. And now this is the last one. Who is another player? I don't know. And he went to Michigan. Michigan. Taylor Lewan. No. <laughs> um, he got drafted Michigan. to Seattle. 63rd pick. Michigan Wolverine drafted to Seattle. You got a year for me? 2015. 2015. He's six foot three, 261 pounds. 6'3", 251. Yeah. 261. Because I know Devin Bush went to Seattle, I think. But there's no way Devin Bush, I guess. But he's not 260 pounds, is he? It's not Devin Bush or, okay. or Devin Bush, whatever you said. <laughs> uh, what round was he drafted again? Uh, second, late second though. Late second, yeah. 63rd pick. In the 2015. 15 draft. He is 29 years and 278 days old. He was born June 14th, 1993 in Bakersfield, California. And he still plays for Seattle or he doesn't play for Seattle? He plays for the Chiefs. He went to the Chiefs in 2019 from Seattle. Who's in Seattle? He's won awards, it looks like. Um, Whatever the PB. Oh, he Pro Bowl. Okay. So he's Pro Bowler three years in a row. Frank Clark? Yes. I didn't think he was a second round pick. That's wild. Would you think he was higher? No. For some reason, I thought he was like a like thir- a, a third day pick, but I'm just stupid, I guess. Mm. Yeah, he came out of Michigan. I don't know if he was big in college or not. but Yeah, those were all actually pretty easy names. Like, those weren't, like, low-key names at all. Those were all pro bowlers at one point. Really? Yeah. Even Zach Martin? Yeah. No, Zach Martin is, like, great <laughs> right tackle. Like, okay. Zach Martin's legit. Hall of Famer, probably. And I don't think that's bold. It's like it's like the same thing as, like, is Jokic a Hall of Famer? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's like that automatic, probably. I, yeah, I didn't realize. In my opinion. But I also give a lot of love to the uh, big guys in the trenches. So. Yeah. Is it harder, like, per position for certain guys to make it into the Hall of Fame? Or is it just always judged on, like, how good you are compared to your position? I don't. The NFL lets a lot of people in. I wish that every Hall of Fame was, like, baseball the more and more I think about it. Mm. Or there was, like, a ring of honor where it was, like, hard. Because baseball, you have to get, like, 75% of the people to vote. And if you were, like, a Yankee your whole career, there's just Boston people that won't vote for you no matter how good you are. Mm. They'll just be like, nope, pass. Yeah, looks I like... Yeah, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, every season, every full season of Zach Martin's career, he's been all pro. Yeah, he's he's good. Even his rookie year. And that, he was part of a great offensive line at Dallas for a long time. Probably, maybe, Jerome Smith was really good at the left tackle spot, but those Cowboys offensive lines were wild. Mm. His brother, his picture is extremely interesting. I was not expecting the contrast. They don't look like brothers. <laughs> But yeah, Tyron Smith, Lyle Collins, Zach Martin, Travis Frederick, and like 
Joe Looney was there. Yeah, they had a great offensive line. Mm. Do you know who Zach Martin's brother is? Zach Martin's brother? Is his last name Martin? He's also an NFL player. Yeah. Martin's in the NFL. Uh, of course, my brain's like turning off now. I have no idea. He's a little bit younger. Younger. Last name Martin. And he's in the NFL. Yes. And he's started... Okay, his first four seasons, he started every game with Houston. And then he didn't start any games. What year did his brother get drafted? 2016. Where did he go to school? Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Yeah. Martin. Martin. Oh, Nick Martin. Center. Legend. Fat boy. Bald, I think. Did you know that they were brothers? Um, No, not like... I I probably would have guessed if they were like been on the same team. (laughs) Yeah. But I never thought about it because I think he's playing in Washington now. Maybe. Um, I just saw it. Yeah, he's Washington. He started. He only played four games. He was only available. I guess is what that means, right? He's been hurt. I think. Yeah. Oh no! It says games played. So if it it marks you down as games played, does that mean you got on the field, or does that just mean you were available? Yes. No, okay. you got on the field. Okay. Yeah, so he, he played four games last year, started two of them. So that's odd that he got on the field with the Raiders in 2021 every single game of the year, all 17 games, but he never started any of them. Is that common? That is a little weird. That's like really weird. <laughs> uh, unless he was like a... Does it have snaps on there? How many snaps he played? Uh, not on that chart. It's, oh, snap counts. It's a different chart. 2021, he snapped the ball seven... I'm confused what this means. Okay, the number. We can, do you want to stop record, Stop this recording or like do an outro? <laughs> so you don't yeah. have to just cut. Because you'll probably, like you could just cut out the whole NFL chunk. Yeah. Anyways, so thank you guys for listening. That has been the game. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We brought it back. Uh, but yeah, we need to get going because we've been going for quite a while now and we're tired. So Thanks. yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode. Please tune back in next week for some more and i love you and appreciate you and i hope you are going to say happy and that you stay healthy (laughs) and um yes we will see you in the next episode peace